Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Pastor Kristen Stone King. Our mission at Epworth is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Together, we encourage each other, challenge each other, and welcome all people on their journey of faith. We are a reconciling congregation, meaning that persons of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcomed to help transform our church and our world into the full expression of Christ's inclusive love. We are a sanctuary church advocating for the rights and dignity of immigrants, and we stand in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message. probably one of the most well-known of all the scriptures. And for many of us, it's the first scripture that we memorized when we were children. (laughs) And I'm sure most of you could recite it along with me this morning. However, I'm going to read it this morning as though this is the first time I have ever read it. And I want you to listen as though this is the first time you've heard these words. And it's really not as hard as you think (laughs) 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 to do that. Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you.
Amen. How about that choir? They're pretty versatile. A versatile lot, too. I understand one of them is giving the message today. <laughs> and so, will you uh, read, uh, pray along with me? The words are in the bulletin. May the words of my mouth and the diligence of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, my strength and our redeemer. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates, in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep with the rivers. Good morning, my fellow congregants. That was Langston Hughes, by the way. It is sweet to be back in the pulpit, seemingly so soon. Your favorite lay leader has become a civilian. <laughs> a mere face in the congregational crowd, enjoying a Sunday life of quiet, relative anonymity. But a while back, uh, Pastor Stone King mentioned that Black History Month was coming, and that our own Randall Miller would be leading a service centered on James Weldon Johnson's God's Trombones. And Randall, you don't know how excited that got me. I was filled suddenly with a rush of memories close to 50 years old. So after the service, I approached the pastor who was talking to another former fellow lay leader, Diane Rush Woods, presumably about something important, but whatever it was, I interrupted, wondering how I had missed out that James Wilton Johnson was to be honored, was not everyone aware that I was a scholar of the Harlem Renaissance. <laughs> well, when these two lovely women, for whom I have unabashedly expressed love and admiration, often looked at me and simultaneously broke into gales of laughter. I realized how utterly ridiculous that sounded. I was not the scholar of anything. I'm not the scholar of anything. I was actually, I got pretty good at uh, drinking and carousing uh, when I was in college. But uh, unable to put that pomposity back into my mouth, I started to gush about him, how important James Weldon Johnson and his brother Jake Rosamond Johnson were to the movement to liberate black people in America, specifically to that glorious sliver of history known as the Harlem Renaissance. Now, because I began my college career in 1972, 
I had the great fortune, although some thought it quite foolish at the time, to major in Afro-American studies, a fledgling discipline in those days. Afro-American studies was a brand spanking new department, so I had to choose a concentration in a more traditional uh, uh, major. So I chose uh, English language and literature. Now you've got to think of me not as the grizzled, cranky old man stands before you today, <laughs> but as a young, innocent, wide-eyed, sporting a beautiful afro and a mustache and anxious to devour the literary world, ready to write the next great American novel. Well, actually, ready to be the next great American novelist. You know, I guess you gotta write a novel to do that. We, you know. <laughs> but anyway, think of it that way. And this being Yale, they didn't just put together any old Afro-American studies department. They brought in some luminaries. And so I was gushing to uh, Kristen and Diane about how I'd uh, taken a course from Toni Morrison, for example. And, uh, but, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., I called him Skip. Skip Gates was the second reader on my senior thesis. And it really was uh, something to me to suddenly be up the street from Harlem and to learn suddenly about the age of the new Negro, which morphed, in, morphed into the Harlem Renaissance, which it had absorbed. It quickly absorbed my imagination in those halcyon days. So by the time I had finished tripping over my own tongue, your pastor, taking pity, asked if I might like to talk about it. <laughs> so here we are. Actually, after a couple of decades worth of working in Washington, D.C. for one federal agency or another, I've become accustomed to being the go-to guy when it comes to public speaking during Black History Month. It had practically become, it's almost instinctual. What had started in 1926 by uh, educator, scholar, Carter B. Woodson, Carter G. Woodson, I'm sorry, as Negro History Week uh, eventually expanded into Black History Month, first uh, advocated in 1969 and officially celebrated, I didn't know this, in 1970 at Kent State. Uh, a few months before this, the fatal shootings took place there. So when I arrived in Washington, D.C. in 1983, a city that uh, was the seat of the federal government and had been majority black since the Civil War, uh, Black History Month was a thing. And as we know, the ranks of black people among professions, such professions as the law, are painfully thin. And the same applies in the federal government. So when word gets around that uh, one is unafraid to make a fool of himself in public, um, one gets asked to speak at public gatherings. And I have read the I Have a Dream speech more times than I care to count. I practically have it committed to memory. But uh, when February comes around, I got to talk. Now I picked the scripture today, the 23rd Psalm, because it's my favorite. I picked the King, King James Version specifically because I think it's so pretty, so poetic, so beautiful. And it's also the one everybody knows. It's so popular. 
And with the thought of the Harlem Renaissance, it struck me that perhaps the beauty and the popularity of black art, poetry, and literature is what we should recognize and celebrate this, this February. And as Keats said, beauty is truth, truth beauty. And John wrote at chapter eight, verse 32, and you will all know the truth and the truth will set you free. It struck me that perhaps the art, music, poetry, and literature produced by black people throughout American history had done as much as politics, protest, sacrifice, and death to advance the cause of freedom for us all. And so I tell you that to tell you this, no bitter world-weary observations today. Today we observe Black History Month with joy, hope, and celebration. A little more than 10 years ago, the journalist and professor Isabel Wilkerson published a, a book called The Warmth of Other Suns. I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant on alien soil to see if it could grow differently, if it could drink the new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. That's a poem by Richard Wright, from which Dr. Wilkerson adopted <laughs> from, uh, the title of her book. And it's uh, an award-winning account of what's become known as the Great Migration. It describes a 20th century exodus of black people, more than six million of them in total, uh, from, from the Jim Crow, mostly rural South, to the urban centers of the North, Midwest, and West. Reconstruction had collapsed in 1878 when federal troops pulled out of the former Confederacy. Black folks were left on their own, left at the mercy of the enemy. For many, eventually six million, Leaving for points north made the most sense. It was a search for better jobs, a search for better housing, a search for better education, for better lives. It was a search for freedom. Now Harlem, physically, was developed in Upper Manhattan in the 1880s, intended for upper class white occupancy. Apparently, however, somebody missed a few guesses as often happens in these speculative situations, and landlords ended up with a lot of empty apartments on their hands. By the early 1900s, black families were moving in from a close-by neighborhood known as Black Bohemia. More followed, resistance by white families gave way to flight, and the nation's premier black neighborhood was born. Then at the same time, in 1915 and 1916, there were a couple of hard years, natural disasters, droughts in the South, harvests were bad, sharecroppers were worse off than ever. And in addition, by 1918, battle-hardened, 
and internationally exposed and sophisticated veterans were retaining, returning from the Great War to great hostility in the South. Many were lynched in the very uniforms they wore in defense of the freedoms of the men who lynched them. By 1920, 1 1.5 million black people had fled the South. 175,000 of them settled in Harlem. James Weldon Johnson, whose collection of poetry, God's Trombones, will be observed and honored by Dr. Miller later this month, and the mention of whose name sparked all of my enthusiasm, is considered one of the principal architects of the Renaissance. His observation of Harlem first time I'm reading from my computer and I couldn't resist bringing these papers up here. <laughs> I'm ever afraid that the, uh, that the computer would go blank. You know, if that happened, you would all see a grown man cry. <laughs> but anyway, James Weldon Johnson's description of Harlem will turn up here somewhere at any rate. He was born in Jacksonville to freeborn Negroes in, um, and graduated from uh, in, 18, in the 1860s, it seems to be. Graduated from Atlanta University in 1894, uh, started a newspaper in 1897. He became the first black person to pass the Florida bar exam. Now, he passed the exam, but apparently in Florida, you have to do a series of orals to uh, get in, in, be part of the Florida exam. And when the three judges saw him enter the room, one of them walked out. And uh, so he was never officially sworn into the Florida bar. But that didn't, uh, that didn't daunt him. Uh, at the turn of the century, along with his brother, Jay Rosamond, he joined the Great Migration, arriving in New York. Uh, he worked on Teddy Roosevelt's presidential campaign in 1904. So he was appointed counsel to, consul to Venezuela and then to Nicaragua. Uh, he studied literature at Columbia. But like with Langston Hughes, the uh, racism forced him elsewhere. Uh, 1912, he wrote and published the novel Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. And he believed it incumbent upon black people to establish an intellectual identity. The production by black folks of great literature and art would prove to the white world our intellect and creativity. In 1970, Mr. Johnson became field secretary, that's pretty much executive director, of the fledgling NAACP. It had been founded in 18, 1909, in part by W.E.B. Du Bois which leads us to W.E.B. Du Bois, another architect of the Harlem Renaissance. He was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in 1868. The W.E. Du Bois stood for William Edward Burgard. He was uh, from a long line of educated people as well. And growing up in Great Barrington, he grew up submerged in the white culture. 
But he recalled being treated fairly and benignly and not really encountering any outright racism and, and uh, discrimination until he went to Nashville, where he went to Fisk University. And uh, from Nashville, he went to, uh, went to Harvard, where he did graduate work. He studied in Berlin while he was working on his master's. He became the first Harvard Ameri African American to get a PhD at Harvard in 1895. So he was kind of on the move, too. His initial book, The Philadelphia Negro, A Social Study, published in 1899, established him as a scholar and a spokesman. And his defining work, The Souls of Black Folk, a collection of essays, was published in 1903. This intellectual prominence placed him ideally to activate the new, open, black artistic expression, which by the 1920s had been the hall, become the hallmark of the prose and poetry of Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? or fester like a sore, and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust over and sugar over like syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? Born in Joplin, Missouri in 1902, Langston Hughes was from a relatively elite, politically active family as well. His maternal grandmother was, for example, the first woman, first black woman to attend uh, Oberlin College. And he began to write in his teens, inspired, oddly enough, by a uh, attentive, well, not, I guess it's not so odd, by, by an attentive teacher at Central High School in Cleveland which was primarily black. He says that when he was young, his, his all-white classmates um, voted him the class poet. He thought it was because they had all heard that black people had rhythm and that poetry required rhythm. But he said that was okay with him, so he went ahead with it and started writing poetry. And uh, that's where he took it. At Columbia, as I said, where he started college in 1921, he chafed at the, uh, he chafed at the racism. But he wrote poetry for the campus paper under a pseudonym. But he was attracted, really, magnetically to the creative energy being let loose just uptown, a few blocks in Harlem. His poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, which I read earlier, was published first in The Crisis. The organ of the NAACP, founded and edited by Dr. Du Bois. Du Bois. So, in addition to these three men informing my undergraduate academic experience, they lay through their words and works a foundation for the fight for freedom that most historians see as the basis for the powerful civil rights movement that burst forth decades later. It's important that we note that we have been familiarized, 
the history we recognize is Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. But there was so much before that upon which the Civil Rights Movement was built. There has always been the struggle for freedom. Now the Renaissance, this confluence of events and internal pride, actually that's confluence and events and eternal pride that created the Harlem Renaissance is similar to that that started the other one. Only this one didn't have the plague with it. They come, well, actually, there was a famine. Uh, there was a bit of a pandemic before this Renaissance as well. But the coming together of black bodies, minds, and souls from throughout the country and the Caribbean in the post-war racially violent period in American history was a kind of perfect storm that resulted in this upswing, oddly enough, of hope and good feeling that the Renaissance represented. It involved a remarkable way in which black people were seen throughout the world and a change in which they viewed themselves. And as a result, a change in the world forever. Because for centuries, we lived in a country, indeed a world, where the subjugation of an entire people to chattel status based on their Africanness was accepted and acceptable. Suddenly, mid-19th century, this was over and illegal. And America didn't know what to do with its black people. Nor we with ourselves, stymied time after time by white resistance. Then, boom. As I described earlier, a confluence of events, the war, more civilian jobs because of the war, the great migration because of more civilian jobs, post-war prosperity resulted in Harlem, that three square miles in upper Manhattan that in 1920s became home to the most dense population of black people in the entire world. Now that's a statistic I came across more than any other. Pretty amazing. In this enviable environment, black life flourished like never before in history. As a result, black artistic expression flourished, and America took note. White people from downtown flocked to the Cotton Club to hear the new music, jazz, and decades later, as in Las Vegas, black people could perform at the Cotton Club but could not attend. But Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway became household names. Black filmmakers like Oscar Micheaux got their stuff made and seen. There are many other poets and novelists, or Neil Hurston. Actually, her work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, has, has enjoyed a resurgence in popularity recently. Um, County Cullen, Arna Montemps, Elaine Locke, the first black Rhodes Scholar, all came to Harlem. They all gained recognition by a wider, by a people who had previously judged black people as subhuman illiterates. Josephine Baker became famous. Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith introduced America to something called the blues through records, record, race records recorded in New York. More important, most important to my eyes, is the way the Renaissance changed the way black Americans viewed themselves as a people. We grew into our own as a people over a very short, concentrated span of time. We were left 
when the Renaissance was over, when the 20s were over, when the Grim Depression set in, we were left with a feeling of pride, of more control over how we were viewed as black people and as Americans. As Langston Hughes proudly declared, we younger Negro artists who create now intend to express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. If white people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly too. So I want to close with a poem by James Weldon Johnson. Actually, it's far too long. I want to, cl to close with the last two stanzas of a beautiful poem by George James Weldon Johnson that I would recommend to you all, called A Poem to a Poet to His Son, in which he closes by saying, my son, this is no time for our place for a poet. Grow up and join the big busy crowd that scrambles for what it thinks it wants out of this world, which is as it is, and probably always will, as it will be. Take the advice of a father who knows. You cannot begin too young not to be a poet. I want to thank you for all of you for allowing me to revisit this beautiful era of black history. Black History Month, during this Black History Month, the Harlem Renaissance comes to mind when I think of the late, oh so great Calvin Simmons, the first black conductor of a major symphony orchestra. Because my brother was in the San Francisco Boys Chorus, I actually had a chance to know Calvin Simmons. When he was a kid in the Boys Chorus, the director always called on him to back her up on the piano. He was a talent. It was a joy to see him grow up and become who he became. When I think of the Harlem Renaissance, I think of Misty Copeland, the principal ballerina at the American Ballet Theater. But it also comes to mind when I see footage of the rap artist performing at the Grammys, many of the men older than me, finally having their art form recognized and honored after 50 years. And it comes to mind when I wonder whether we celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday as a result of intense political lobbying and pressure, or more as a result of Stevie Wonder writing that song. Give that some thought, my fellow congregants, as we grow forth from here to celebrate Black History Month. Thank you.
You've been listening to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Wherever you're located, we'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. Our online worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at epworthberkeley.org. Or you can fill out an online connect card at epworthberkeley.org backslash connect. Have a great week. Wonderful.